Divorce, custody, paternity, alimony, these are all emotionally charged and complicated concepts that arise in family law, which is the subject of today's show, part one of three episodes. Welcome to the Barry Law Legal Podcast. Barry Rosenzweig has been an attorney for over 25 years and is nationally known as a visionary in his profession. In each episode, attorney Barry Rosenzweig interviews lawyers, real estate agents, lenders, and other professionals that bring popular legal-related topics into focus for his listeners. So get ready for an educational and exciting episode. Now, here's your host, Barry Rosenzweig. We're in the studio today with Joe Vicciolo, and we're going to be talking about family law. I've known Joe for quite a long time, and I want her to tell me a little bit about herself. Thanks, Barry. I've been practicing family law exclusively for about 20 years. Um, I'm in the metropolitan area. Our offices are in Edina, although we do the 11-county metro area. Also, outstate, I've been recently in Olmstead County. I've been in Duluth, just all over. But the uh, biggest part of my practice is in the metro area. And you cover all areas of family law? Yes, I do. Let's just start out by you telling me... um, under the family law umbrella, what are some of the things that would be involved or that you'd be working on under that family law umbrella? Sure. I think that most people probably think of divorce right away when they think of family law. But actually, there are a lot other areas of family law uh, as part of the, as you said, under the umbrella. There's uh, prenuptial agreements and then postnuptial agreements. There's divorce. There's custody and parenting time. Um, Third-party custody, when someone else comes into a family and, and receives custody of a child or children, a grandparents' rights, and paternity. Paternity is where the parties have children together or a child together, uh, but they're not married. And that's a separate and apart from custody and parenting time in a divorce. And they, it looks uh, differently, and there are different statutes related to it. Um, there's also order for protections, which are, um, as you can imagine, pretty uh, intense and stressful. And then after um, there's court orders, there's something that we call post-decree matters. Um, people sometimes run into bumps two years after the divorce or three years, and then they come back and, and they'll hire our firm to work on those type of issues. Well, it seems like there's a lot of different parts to that that I never realized. Right. Tell me a little bit about when, I, when somebody comes in your office and they just say, I want to get a divorce. Um, first of all, how do they decide what attorney they should hire and, you know, qualifications and that sort of thing. Right. A a good deal of my work is from personal referrals. Um, Clients will refer clients or, excuse me, potential clients. Um, Now with the onset of uh, online advertising, we get clients that way as well, that they'll come in the door. Um, But when they come in, they really, there's a whole gamut uh, sometimes a person just wants to know, they're not sure that they want to move forward. And I'll, I'll stick exclusively right now just to divorce, as if that's the issue that is at hand. And they'll, they'll want to know, what will it look like? What parts are involved? Um, can I do this? Or, you know, what will, they're, they're mainly concerned if they have children about um, 
you know, what if they move forward with a divorce, how will a court handle deciding where a kid lives, that sort of thing? And then if they don't have kids, the financial issues. Um, they're often worried about, well, if we have one household now, um, but now they're going to be two, how will that be supported? So they'll come in the door and they'll say, okay, can you give me general information about what it looks like? Other people will come in and they've decided. They know um, and they, they just want to move forward. They're, they're ready. And there's something that's called a divorce readiness scale. And that's when two parties, you know, the husband and wife or the wife and wife or husband and husband will, um, one person has been thinking about the divorce for a while and wants to move forward, you know, couldn't be divorced fast enough. Well, the other spouse might be caught off guard or has been thinking about it. So um, we'll, I'll often assess where are they on the divorce readiness scale. Sometimes people are one. Um, some people have minus two. They don't want it at all, right? And then others are tens where they've, as I just said, they've been thinking about it and planning it for a while. And so, you know, that's another thing that gets assessed when they come in or um, we kind of talk about and recognizing where each spouse is on that divorce readiness scale. And then I'll, I'll talk about the three parts of a divorce. Uh, the first part is uh, what you typically think about is custody and parenting time. And custody and parenting time are different. So custody, there is physical custody, obviously, you know, where the children, the, the, who's the physical custodian. And then there's legal custody. And legal custody has to do with three areas of the law or, excuse me, decision-making. It has to do with a child's educational background, where they're going to go to school. You'll often see, um, you know, one one parent wants the child to go to a private school, the other a public, um, or what school district, are, one, they live in two different school districts, where are the kids going to go, that sort of thing. And the second thing is medical decision-making for legal custody. Uh, the most common we see is if you have teens or preteens and one parent wants the child to go to counseling, well, if you have what we call joint legal custody, both parents have to agree to it. So oftentimes parents will be at loggerheads because one thinks the child's fine, the other wants counseling, and so that's another part of the legal custody. And then the third part is religious upbringing. What, how are, what faith, if any, will your child be uh, raised in. We don't see a lot of issues with religious upbringing. Um, the two biggest issues are um, educational and then medical uh, care. So that's that's the um, joint legal, or excuse me, legal and physical custody. Underneath that is parenting time, and that really is what's most important outside of legal custody because that's the daily care and control of where a child or children will be. Is that sort of like the Every other weekend type of yes, thing you hear about. Right, exactly. So so the parenting schedule drives child support. Um, it drives where the kids will be. Um, in, in joint physical custody arrangements, you often see what we call a 5-2-2-5 schedule, which is Monday and Tuesday with one parent, Wednesday and Thursday with the next, and then they alternate weekends. And so that's the parenting time schedule. That doesn't have anything to do with custody, but just where the kids are. Well, let me ask you this. How, how does that typically affect the kids when they're moving, particularly if they're in different school districts right. or different cities, you know, within the... Right. I, I've been, as I said earlier, I've been practicing about 20 years. And when you have parents who are younger who are divorcing, 
there is I, I've seen a real change in in um, both mom and dad being hands on uh, with the kids, and so they don't want to give up any time. So they oftentimes agree to a schedule like this five two two five. I have to say over the years, I think it's become more problematic. And I'll often say to my clients, would you want that schedule? Would you want to live in one house on Monday and Tuesday, then a different house on Wednesday and Thursday, and then alternate weekends? And just to have them kind of thinking about it because, um, you know, with your kids, that's the thing that's closest to your heart, right? And you want to make sure that they're okay. But I think sometimes parents don't realize what they, what that might look like for their child. With regards to that, I knew a situation where the the kids lived in the one home and the parents would shift homes themselves. Have you ever seen that? It's called nesting. Yep. And it's pretty common. It was popular, oh, I don't know, five, ten years ago. It's kind of losing a little bit of its, um, you know, the glamour of it, so to speak. And that's because mental health professionals are... um, not all, but some are saying that they don't think that's best for a kid. And I think be, the reason is it's confusing. You know, if parents are divorcing, right, mom, you know, one parent, excuse me, is going to have a home and the other parent is as well. But when you have the kids in one home and the parents shift in and out, it can be confusing for a child. Plus, there are big boundary issues, right? You're divorced, but here comes one parent back in the home. And then, you know, it's so... It, as I said, it used to be a lot more popular, but I think that they're finding it's not it's not the best case. We see it most frequently now at the beginning of a divorce when people aren't sure, am I going to stay in the house? Am I going to uh, move someplace else? Am I going to rent something? So until those details, the final decisions as um, for the divorce are made, that's when we see it. Maybe do you find this more often nowadays with where people are having difficulty financially, particularly going through a divorce, where both spouses stay in the home together but live in different levels or yep. different rooms? That's really common. Uh, after 2008, it, the, the uptick in the people staying in the house together um, really was, I mean, they just couldn't afford it because their houses were now underwater. There was no equity. They couldn't afford two places um, just with that that severe economic downturn. So uh, that we saw a lot. People will, if if it's an amiable divorce, people will often do that because um, they want to save money and they want to wait till the very end and, you know, not waste uh, money on renting another place or buying another home till they know what they're doing. Um, but I think now that you see recommendations that it's better to separate than to say, stay in the same home because if there's tension between the parents, it trickles down to the kids. But I have a lot of cases where one person's in the basement living and then the other person is on the main floor. Um, but that doesn't last a long time. The tension just, it just becomes untenable. Let me shift gears just a little bit. Mm-hmm. What, tell me a little bit about what the m- different reasons people do get divorced. Well, I think, you know, as you and I were, were talking earlier, I think most people think it's because of infidelity. And, and I just don't see that at all. The two most common reasons that I see people divorcing are because of mental health issues, um, often untreated. Uh, someone has a personality disorder and or um, domestic abuse, um, and then chemical dependency. Those are the main reasons. Reasons sometimes you see it for financial, like they're so far apart on financial, or um, you know one person has a, a true spending problem, and you know 
seventy, eighty thousand dollars in credit card debt, and the other person said, "I can't take it anymore. I just want to get out." Uh, but that might even swing back around to mental health issues. I think that's the biggest. Um, that is the biggest reason that I see people um, deciding to move forward because they they'll come into my office and they'll say, "I just can't. I just can't handle them. Or I can't take it." You know. So well, I would think. I think that's surprising, probably to most people. Yeah. Because I think it's surprising to me. Um, Maybe not the dependency issues so much because I can see that, but sometimes the mental health issues, um, maybe it's a little harder to see. Right, right. You know, and their personality starts conflicting between the two, you know, between the two of them. Right. And they... They don't see what it is necessarily or it's undiagnosed. Right. And I think that's really common. And 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 I know it's a popular in our, you know, with our climate right now to use the word narcissist um, to say that, you know, someone's right. a narcissist. But many of my cases, you see a true narcissist, someone who um, lacks the ability to take responsibility uh, for his or her own behavior, um, who um, and that that other spouse who's always being blamed for things just gets to the point where they get fed up and they say, you know, you know, this is it. I can't, I can't put up with that anymore. Or um, this always surprises me it, within that same personality disorder that um, how demeaning the narcissist is to the other spouse. I had one case where uh, the husband did not want a divorce. In fact, he he delayed hiring an attorney until right before trial, and then I think he panicked because he knew it was going forward. But he would he would cut out letters and put them by my uh, side of my client's bed, right? To I love you and you know that sort of thing. But then he would treat her horribly. He would say things, "You're nothing without me." When I met you, you said "junky car," you know, like all these awful things. And I would think, "Oh, that's going to win her back." Um, if you have the personality disorder, um, I think the person who struggles with that doesn't always recognize the behavior and the effect on the other spouse. What about same-sex marriages? Sure. Like, like t- talk a little bit about that. In Minnesota, right. Well, as you know, that that Minnesota law allows uh, people of the same sex to marry, and we've had a, done a handful of same sex divorces. Not a lot, just because the uh, the statute, you know, was just put into place just several years ago. So it isn't as if there were twenty year marriages. Um, we would see that in some states. Iowa had same sex marriage long before Minnesota did. So if people move here and they're legally married in Iowa, Minnesota recognizes that. So um, we would have some of those. Um, it really it doesn't change too much. Um, what I see is there's more uh, what we call premarital tracing of assets to you know to look at. Just because, as I said, um, that hasn't been our law in Minnesota for very long. Uh, but you're still you know figuring out the same thing. The parenting time schedule between the spouses, the division of assets, um, is there any spousal support? So um, it's, it's... It's really no different. No, it's no different. Yeah. Another question that common law marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a misconception in this state as to common law marriage. And, you know, I've had people ask me um, as an attorney, even though I don't practice in family law, um, I've lived with my girlfriend or my boyfriend for X amount of years. So it, we're we're actually married. No, they're not actually. <laughs> they are not actually married. Um, so Minnesota abolished common law marriage, and I think most people think if you live together consistently for seven years, then then you are married by common law. But Minnesota doesn't recognize that. So as I said, it was abolished in the, I believe the early 1940s. However, if another state recognizes common law marriage, and that couple moves to Minnesota. 
and they, they're married under another state's common law, then Minnesota will recognize that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's the same, you know, it's the same thing as the same-sex marriage before Minnesota, right, that those, those marriages are recognized. If a, a couple is living together, or boyfriend, girlfriend, not married, and the woman gets pregnant and has a child, how do you determine, you know, paternity for the male, for example, sure. I mean, obviously, you know who the female, the female right, right. is obvious. It's pretty clear who mom is, right? <laughs> but as far as the father goes, how do you determine that? And you know, also, how does it affect if they're on the birth certificate or not on the birth certificate? Right. You know, sign or don't sign on it. Right. Sometimes it's really clear. You know, mom will say, "There, I've had no other partners. I know a hundred percent that this is this is dad." Um, and so, in Minnesota, if you sign what's called a recognition of parentage. And if you're not married in Minnesota and have a child, at the hospital, a form will be brought to you called a recognition of parentage. And that both parents are signing it saying, we acknowledge that this is mom and this is dad. And under Minnesota law, dad is then what we call adjudicated the father. It doesn't mean that he has any parenting time rights or custody rights. It just means that he is the legal father. So that is that is really common. If you don't have, if um, you're not sure, then you can ask for genetic testing. Uh, we had a case uh, recently where um, mom and dad were both married to other people. Um, mom knew who the dad was, and uh, dad, you know, biological dad didn't want to, you know, fess up to it, right? So we had to bring an action and ask the court to order him to undergo genetic testing to show that he was dad, and he was. Is that common for a judge to almost always okay that? Yes, I haven't, I don't ever, I can't think of a case where um, genetic testing was requested and, and it was denied. They, they want to figure out who the father is, but we don't see that very often. Most people know, you know, they, okay. they know, so. What about where, you know, a situation where uh, the boyfriend... Um, or husband, like you talked about, um, you know, assumes they're the father. Right. And the mother doesn't want to say or doesn't know for sure. Right. Um, How does that conflict with maybe who the real father is and who the, you know, deemed father is, the person who basically, you know, the boyfriend currently who says it's my son or daughter? Well, you have to be careful because there's a time frame to say that you're not dad, right? And oftentimes... It will it will lapse right that time period to challenge to say whether you're dad or not. So, if a child is born, if the parties are married and a child is born, it is deemed that 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 husband is the father, right? So that's just and so if he's not, he has to bring an action challenging and saying, um, "I'm not dad. I want genetic testing." That sort of thing. Usually, what happens is that that three year time period lapses. And it's too late for dad uh, to challenge it, so then he'll be deemed the legal father, even if he's not the bi- biological father. And some, a lot of times, um, I've seen in cases that the the father, the legal father, not the biological father, doesn't care because he's been living with the kid, loves the kid, is you know, it's is seeing that child as as his own, even though he's not biological. It's kind of akin to adoption, right? When parents adopt a child, right, they're not the biological parents, but they're mom and dad, and they're the legal parents, legal that parents, sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, child support. Um, situation where um, woman and girlfriend, boyfriend, um, presumably 
are in a relationship. Uh, 19 years later, 20 years later, the boyfriend finds out that the daughter or son is his because right. they've talked about it after the fact or maybe they re- knew about it yeah. earlier. Um, but maybe the the mother is re- is remarried or is right. married. Okay? Right. And what happens with a child support situation if it's, you know. Passed. At, at what age, first of all, are, are, is child support paid? Sure. Till. And then, you know, what happens if it's passed? Right. So if uh, child support, so you, there's in, a, uh, and I'll leave the divorce part. I'll just kind of focus on the paternity part of it. So if a, a court has the ability in any kind of custody action to order child support. And so if the parents aren't married and we know that dad is the legal father, if he signed a a recognition of parentage, that recognition of parentage um, gives the county the authority to seek child support from dad. If dad never signed a recognition of parentage, then the county has to go through um, you know, that whole um, genetic testing and so on and more hoops to jump through. So as uh, the, what the law says is that a uh, parent always has an obligation to support a child. So right away. Now let's say two years have gone by, the couple is living together, um, everything is just peachy, right? Um, and then the couple breaks up and they're living in, in separate homes. If the mom wants to seek child support from dad and they have not been married, under Minnesota law, she can go back two years. So okay. so that dad could be on the hook for child support for the two previous years. So let's say the kid is six, right, and mom, and they break up. Mom can't go back six years, but she can go back two years and have um, asked the court to order child support. And, and what's the age that you have to typically pay child support um, up to? He, until the child uh, turns 18 or is emancipated, which we think of graduation from high school, whichever is later. Okay, so yeah. graduation from high school yep. actually counts. Yep, exactly. So if a kid turns 18 in October of his or her senior year, the obligor, the person paying the child support, pays until that child graduates from high school. What about a situation where, um, do you see where a divorce situation or an unmarried situation that the uh, Mother, for example, who will not get remarried. Oh, for spousal? Because they don't, you know, because of spousal maintenance or potentially, I don't know, child support, I don't know. Right. So um, child support is not affected by remarriage. And the new spouse's income, so oftentimes people will worry, well, if I get remarried and my spouse, will they now look at her income or his income for figuring out my child support obligation? And they don't. Child support is based on the gross income of each parent, and you also take into factor what are the cost of the health insurance premiums and dental premiums and who's paying them, and if there's child care, who's paying that. And we have a calculator from the from DHS, and you just plug in the numbers, and it kicks out a number, uh, what your child support obligation is. Now, so it's pretty straightforward from very straightforward. case to case. Yep, and in uh, Minnesota, there was a, an overhaul of the child support in August of 2018, where we used to be in what we called percentages of parenting time. If you had your child 0 to 10% of overnights, 10 to 45%, and then the third category was 45.1, and then the calculator kicked it out. Now, the law changed in August, and we're still kind of handling this because it's fairly recent, where you literally count every single overnight. 
So you have to plug into the calculator out of 365 nights, how many does one parent have and how many does the other? So that's kind of shifted um, the law. So as I said, that's because it's such recent law, we're, we're really um, getting more cases with that and, and seeing that a little bit more. So not affected at all by remarriage. And child support is not. Child support is not. Gross so, income of the parents is all you look spousal at. Spousal support's different, right? Absolutely different. So in spousal maintenance, that is, you know, some people think of it as alimony. And there are a variety of statutory factors of whether, and that's in a marriage, that is not in a paternity matter. So it's only in a divorce situation. So when you're looking at spousal maintenance, there are um, statutory factors the court has to look at in deciding um, how, you know, how much spousal maintenance, who's going to get it, you know, that sort of thing. So um, things such as the length of the marriage, um, the standard of living during the marriage, uh, did one party work to accumulate assets, what's the educational background of the person seeking spousal maintenance, what is earning capacity. And I've done probably over 100 trials over my career, and by far I've done the most is spousal maintenance because there's not a clear rule. And even from judge to judge, one judge might be more pro-spousal maintenance and one less, even though we have our statutes because um, they can be subjective. You might say, well, this person needs four years to get back into the workforce and go back to school and get training to be updated. And one judge might give that person more time and give spousal, okay, I'll award spousal for four years until that person completes college and, and can get a job, and then we'll look at it again. Um, other people will say, nope, the law says both parties are expected to work 40 hours a week. Okay, you know, person asking for spousal, go out and get a job now. You know, there's plenty of work. There's no reason. So you have to um, mitigate what you're asking for in spousal maintenance by working um, before, you know, you can say this is the, the final amount. But there is an expectation. And that's within the last five years. There were a couple of cases that came out. Um, Passalt and Powell were cases that said, um, look, obligee, you know, person getting the, the spousal, um, you know, you we expect you to contribute to, to your expenses as well. And for some people, it might be part-time because that's all they have the capacity. It could be, a, you know, a job where they're earning twenty-four dollars or $25,000 a year. Or it could be where they're, you know, one parent was out of the workforce and it's going to take a little bit of retraining and they're going to be at hundred grand. And, you know, so those are all different factors. That is affected if you remarry. Because if you, under Minnesota law, if you remarry, your spousal maintenance ends. Uh, what happens with, um, going back to the budget, what happens with um, children who are in private school? Is that a big issue as far as, you know, yeah. if they have to keep paying for it or one party does or the other party and maybe one party never agreed that it was a good idea to begin with and they want to kind of say public school right. is okay? I mean, because that, right. that can be an expensive part right. of it. That's frequently a disputed issue, and you have to have a judge decide. So I had a judge once, this is years ago in Anoka County, where the kids had gone to private school. They were like fifth graders, six, you know, around that age. They had a couple of kids. And so we put in our client's budget the cost of tuition because, to me, they had decided together that was an expense. And, and um, Dad said, nope, I don't want to have to pay for it. And the judge said, I'm not going to make him pay for it, right? But another judge might say, well, look, you decided together. We don't want to upset the apple cart. We want the kids to maintain stability. Um, so it really, it's not child support, right, because that's that's different. So it, it kind of depends, but we frequently see that disputed. Okay. So 
Join us for our next episode for part two of this three-part episode on family law. Thanks for listening. This has been the Barry Law Legal Podcast. Tune in again as Barry interviews lawyers, real estate agents, lenders, and other professionals that bring popular legal-related topics into focus for his listeners. Barry Rosenzweig can be reached at 952-920-1001 in Minnesota and 480-227-2203 in Arizona. He can also be reached by email at barry at barrylaw.com or online at www.barrylaw.com.